Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 338th episode of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Coming to you on Voice America Business Channel. This is our eighth year broadcasting across the world from our studio in Hollywood, California, where technology meets entertainment. Well, if you live here in the US, today is tax day. It's the final day you've got to lodge your tax returns. So you've got until tonight. I got my return in a couple of months ago, so I'm having a relaxed, worry-free day. It's great. I can recommend it. If you had a number of years where I waited until the last minute and drove to find a, um, a post office open at 11.30 at night <laughs> so I could post the bloody thing. But um, I've solved that just by doing it early. Now, the great thing about tax day here is that most companies give away free stuff in celebration of tax day. I've never been able to work out quite why, but I found a few this morning. California tortilla. You go there and you get free trips, uh, free trips, free chips, and quesadillas. The Great American Cookie Company gives you free cookies and cream. Hardee's gives you a free sausage biscuit. Hot dog on a stick, you get a free original turkey dog. Planet Fitness are giving out free hydro massages. This is one I like. Hooters. Hooters, you get a free kids' meal. What the hell are you doing at Hooters with your kids? <laughs> and the kids have got to be under 12. So, um, Chuck E. Cheese give you a free large cheese pizza. And there's millions more. Everybody's got freebies going. I think it's great. So, um, how cool is that? Now, here in the US, we believe that we're the world leaders in technology. Of course, the reality is that we're not. We also believe we're the most free nation in the world. Again, we're not. And when you look at the number of crimes that go unsolved, you know, only 47% of violent crimes and 35% of property crimes get reported. And only 70% of those get solved. So you're down in the 20% of crimes that get solved. So you've got to work out that crime does pay and the people who lose are the rest of us. Yet, the majority of Americans are against more surveillance. To me, pretty ridiculous. I really believe that if you're a good guy, you have nothing to fear. You know, fuck the bad guys. They deserve to be caught. And this is, this is what brought me to this is something very interesting. In just two years in China, there will be 570 million Surveillance cameras. That's one camera for every two citizens. At the same time, China's building a national database that will recognise any citizen within three seconds. Now, I don't see any of that really as a bad thing. Again, if you haven't done anything wrong, what the hell? So I'd love to hear your views on that. Send me an email with your thoughts. Bob at BobPritchard.com. Now, here are some of the ways that people's faces are being used for surveillance in China. 
One of the most common facial recognition programs is a thing called Face Plus Plus, which is used to manage entry everywhere from train stations to identifying commuters via their face and voice to Alibaba's office building. Now you think if you've got to go through facial recognition as voice recognition to get into a building, we sure as hell reduce shootings like the one we saw at the YouTube office, wouldn't it? So what's wrong with that? What's wrong with knowing who the hell's coming into your building? You know, we all live in our homes with um, with cameras and cameras on the door so we can see who's there. What the hell's wrong with doing that everywhere? Now, facial recognition cameras are installed at intersections to take pictures of people who are crossing the road, breaking traffic rules. Fair enough. What would you rather have, a camera at the corner picking out people who are walking across against the red light or whatever, or have pedestrians constantly mown down. Now, there seems to be pedestrians whacked every day. I'd rather have the cameras. Now, railway police in China, they have facial recognition sunglasses that can identify people within 100 milliseconds. Now, since their introduction earlier in the year, They've been used to identify 69 bad criminals. That What's wrong with that? Getting the railways. Would you rather have them on the trains or would you rather have them in jail? College entrance exams across the country use facial and fingerprint recognition to ensure that the people that are taking the tests are the real people. What's wrong with that? Would you rather have somebody have a stand-in to take the test so that the person that you employ that you think's got a degree hasn't? It's ridiculous. Now, Alibaba's got a chain of cashless stores, a bit like Amazon Go, and they're called Hemmer. And shoppers use their face and phone number to approve payments from their Alipay account and so that the chain knows that they're real people. What's wrong with that? Customer of Customers of China Merchants Bank scan their faces instead of their bank cards. What's wrong with that? And to enter the Hotan Bazaar in Xinjiang, shoppers must have their face scanned and cross-referenced to their national identification card. So you can't walk in there with a submachine gun and kill people. I don't see anything wrong with that. And petrol stations require drivers to be identified by facial recognition before you can fill up your car. I think that's fair enough. You go in, you buy gas. They have the right to know who the hell you are, particularly if you drive off without paying. And China's police have got an SUV. They've got 360-degree cameras that can scan every face within 200 feet while driving at 75 miles an hour. And the driver's instantly alerted to any database match. I don't really see anything wrong with that either. I don't care if a police car drives past me and identifies who I am. What do I care? So um, I think it's worth thinking about. Do we need increased surveillance? And is there really anything wrong with it? So do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? A hell of a lot of people do, about 1.8 million of them. It takes just 30 seconds to read every day. Well, I must admit, sometimes it takes a minute. 
but it's a very quick read and every day we tackle a different subject. We talk about medicine, we talk about new apps, a new technology to subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain. Today we did a forecast of things that were going to change in the next five years and I had a, a flood of emails saying, wow, geez, we didn't know half these things were this close. So the newsletter is totally free and its information is invaluable. And if you don't get the newsletter, you should. All you've got to do is go to my website, which is bobpritchard.com, P-R-I-T-C-H-A-R-D.com, and enroll. People do it every day. So just go to bobpritchard.com, enroll in the newsletter. If you don't, if you get it a couple of times and you don't want to get it anymore, you simply hit the unsubscribe button and bingo. You're off. You won't get it again. And we also don't sell our mailing list to anybody. So if you get the newsletter, no one else anywhere ever is going to bother you. Now, one of the most popular questions that I'm asked is when you've got intellectual property, you know, work or an invention that's the result of creativity, how do you protect it? Well, actually, you have several ways you can protect it. You can protect it through a patent or a copyright or a trademark. And, uh, you know, when you're getting work done, for example, if you contract out work, always make sure that your contract with a developer, say a software developer, for example, is work for hire. This enables you to protect and sell your license to your intellectual property. If you don't do that, you run the risk of the developer that you paid to do this for you saying that they own it and you can end up in an awful mess and it happens a lot. And having a patent for your product, even in patent pending status, can be very helpful when approaching manufacturers and buyers. You go to, you're looking to um, get your product on a shelf somewhere or, or you want to get a distributor or whatever, the fact that it's patent pending or it's patented, it just gives you an edge. It, it increases your credibility and that makes a big difference. Companies that are developing products or software or other intangible creations of human intellect, you need to carefully evaluate whether you should take action to legally protect those things you've invented. And return on investment should be one of the key determinants. You know, if it's going to cost you 10 grand to patent it and you're only going to make two grand out of selling it or licensing it or you're not going to make any money out of licensing it because the only person that this is good for is you, don't do it. So the... Um, You've got to think about whether you, you need to do it or not. And some key considerations, including making sure you have written agreements with employees, just outlining who owns the rights to the work product. You know, it's been done many times before that somebody who works for a company who's developed something um, claims the patent and you can be in trouble. So you need procedures in place to seek patents when necessary to meet the deadlines associated with the process. There's several deadlines and if you miss them, you can blow your patent or blow your, um, your copyright. 
and being aware of what other companies are operating in the field and what patents they hold is also very important. It's also very important to be cautious when sharing your idea. At the start of the project, only tell very few people, only people you have to tell. And if you've come up with a really good catchy name, trademark it straight away. And if you're getting a prototype made, outsource all the bits of the prototype to different companies so no one has all of the pieces of the product and nobody can pinch it. Everyone who's working with you should sign non-disclosure agreements. It's really important. They're not, you know, people tell you all the time they're not worth the paper they're written on, and they're really not, but it does show intent. You know, you should, this is one time where you should be paranoid. So intellectual property is a worker invention that's a result of your creativity. It could be a manuscript or a design to which you have the rights and for which you can apply for a patent, copyright, or trademark. Now, a trademark is a symbol or a word or words legally registered or established by use as representing a company or product. Copyright, that's the exclusive legal right given to an originator or an assignee to print, publish, perform, film, record, um, and to authorise others to do the same. And a patent is a government authority or licence conferring the right of a title for a set period especially the sole right to exclude others from selling your invention. We're ha hackers. Hackers are everywhere, and there seems to be more and more of them. And they're increasingly ta targeting unprotected Internet of Things devices, such as air conditioning systems and CCTV, to get into corporate networks. Now, the Internet of Things refers to devices. You know, everything in your house can be hooked up to the Internet so that you'll your phone can turn on your lights or turn on your kettle or turn on your air conditioning or close your blinds or lock the front door. It applies to almost everything, thermostats, refrigeration systems, air conditioning, you know, and everything in between. Even if you take your Alexa device into your office, it's a potential hack. So we don't really think very often about the security flaws that might be present in each individual unit. Now, an example just recently where a casino was hacked via a thermometer in a lobby aquarium. The attackers used the thermometer to get a foothold into the network. They then found the information they wanted. They pulled that back out across the network, out to the thermostat, and from the thermostat up to the cloud. So just a thermostat connected to the internet in a tank, an aquarium, can be hacked. Now, Israeli researchers recently tested some off-the-shelf smart home devices and found that they're able to access the majority of them by simply using default factory passwords. Some phone applications designed to, house, to monitor household appliances have been found to contain really bad flaws. For example, your robot vacuum cleaner has got a camera in it. It can be giving hackers a guided tour of your home using their onboard cameras. <laughs> so you can get hacked from everywhere. And with the Internet of Things producing thousands of new devices connected to the Internet, it's going to be an increasing problem. A bank was recently hacked through its CCTV cameras, and those CCTV cameras are meant to catch bad guys. 
not enable them. It's probably safe to say that uh, you won't be attacked by your robot lawnmower anytime soon, but the proliferation of cheap, unregulated IoT gadgets means cybersecurity firms are responding to new threats every week. So this is probably one area where there'll likely be regulation for minimum security standards because the market simply isn't going to correct itself. The problem is the items are so cheap and securing them is more expensive. Now my guest today is Tim Fargo and Tim is the president and CEO at socialjukebox.com. And if you don't know Social Jukebox, it's an app that eliminates the need to continually schedule your posts and it manages all your content. Very interesting. Great product. And I'll be back with Tim after this short break on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, being broadcast across the world this week from Hollywood in California, where technology meets entertainment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Now, over the last five and a half, nearly six years, we've given you insights into the lives of over 300 of the world's most interesting business people. We've talked about what they do. And we try to find out what it is that makes them tick. You know, it's extremely difficult to create a successful business. And we all need to receive advice and assistance from those entrepreneurs who have achieved achieved success before us. We certainly don't need to repeat the mistakes of others. So the aim of this segment is to give you the knowledge to address these fundamental issues and to assist you to become successful. My guest today is Tim Fargo. He's an entrepreneur, an international keynote speaker, and he's a best-selling author. He's presently serving as president and CEO at socialjukebox.com, a great name, I might add. I think that's, you know, that's one of the really good app names. And it's an app that eliminates the need to continually schedule your posts, and it manages your content. This is what I need, trying to trying to juggle content for my newsletter every day and the radio show and everything else. It's a nightmare. And the apps received loads of media dimensions, including Inc., 
Forbes and Social Media Examiner. Tim was the founder of Omega Insurance Services, an an investigative (laughs) firm. He started in an extra bedroom and sold (coughs) seven years later for 20 million bucks. Tim, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're being heard all around the world. Hey Bob, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. That was a that was a very nice intro. I actually almost I almost got impressed myself, but then I realized it was just me. <laughs> Where are you at the moment? I am in Rudzow, Poland. In Poland, what's the weather like there? Blustery. It's uh, it's it's about. Probably 14 degrees and uh, and very windy. We we just had a, a pretty warm spell and then we had a cold front hit. So now we're it's a bit stormy, right. but otherwise lovely. Not bad. Yeah, I, I'm spoiled living in Southern California for so long. I'm in Sydney at the moment and it is cold. Well, cold for me anyway. Now, for our listeners that might not have heard about Social Jukebox. How does it work? Um, essentially, you put your content in, and each jukebox, so to speak, is a reservoir of content. So, for instance, somebody like you that's doing kind of you know broadcasting, um, you might have uh, your back catalog of um, shows and whatnot in one jukebox, and maybe you'd have some things that you um, like, maybe some blog posts you'd written in the past in another jukebox because you maybe want to distribute those at different speeds. And then we have a thing called targeted posts, which is a more specific um, way to share content. And like if you had a new show, you'd put it there and then schedule it to transfer after a certain number of days. So essentially what it does is if you wanted to create a media schedule, right. you can automate that media schedule. So as you, And then as you have new content, you can add it into the system. I mean, that's really the idea. I got it. Um, I had written a book and that, I mean, the whole product came out of, I got so sick of being on social media trying to promote the book. Yeah, I was like, I this, is, this, ta- is, this is taking way too much of my time. So um, I ended up contacting a friend of mine. He built the product for me. Um, and then I found out people were a lot more interested in my software than they were my book. So I was like, well, you know what? Screw the book. Welcome to the software business. And, uh, and the rest is history. So how did you come up with the name social jukebox? It's one of those two o'clock in the morning. Wow. Moments, was it? Yeah. I mean, well, it was a combination of wow. And like, Basically, going through a list of possible names, um, like first doing a ser- search on what domains are available. Which is um, none. <laughs> <clears throat> well, none with, you know, it's like, you know, my granny's social media distribution system.com. Yeah, none with um, any sizzle. Yeah, so, you know, you, you quickly eliminate a whole herd of names because they've been taken or parked or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> Lo and behold, it was available. We started out as Tweet Jukebox because in the beginning it was just Twitter, but now it's Twitter and Facebook everything, and LinkedIn. Yeah. So, how did you become an entrepreneur? Did you pop out of college and go, "Aha, I want to be an entrepreneur"? Screw the boss. Um, I think it was more. I mean, from when I was a kid, um, 
I was cutting grass and shoveling snow and running errands for neighbors. I mean, basically, I was a little bit of a mercenary. I mean, if you had some cash and you had something that was legal, I would do it. Um, <laughs> so, <clears throat> and, and it, because my dad was, and it was also partly because my dad was uh, pretty tough to get a dollar out of. Um, so, but anyhow, I, I think it was born out of, I really preferred. I mean, because I had like a when I was maybe 15, 16, I actually had a job um, and I much preferred just if I cut someone's grass, I could go there, get the job done and then just like take off. Right. Um, so my, my hourly rate ended up being much better than working as some, you know, uh, minimum wage earner at some store or whatever, you know, typical kind of student jobs. Yeah, I, no, I understand. Um, so. What was the first challenge when you were when you went? What was your first apart from cutting lawns and things? What was your first entrepreneurial role? What was the first thing you took on as an entrepreneur? Um, I would say the stagger step, the intermediate step, where I really kind of got back into it with any degree of oomph was um, I tutored people all through college, and. Um, it started out as just like like a tiny bit, and then it turned into I was selling blocks of time. You could get a discount if you bought 10 hours. You could get a deeper discount if you bought 20 hours. And so, I mean, I actually was – I think my grades dipped a little bit because I was actually doing that so much. I mean, it was more like obviously it was solopreneuring. Yeah. But um, – and I went from that, and actually this kind of segues into a, a great failure. Um <laughs> <clears throat> I decided I had this idea to um, this is when databases were new. Right. right. I mean, it, they weren't they weren't new. They weren't new, but PCs were new. And like having a database that was accessible to a normal human being was pretty new. Yeah. Um, so I had the idea um, based on like when I had gone to the career center, it was horrible. It was like a horrible experience. So I thought, OK, I can have people put their resume into a database and then I'll mark it to employers and instead of them doing on-campus recruiting, they can contact me and I'll get them the resumes they want from whatever university. Sure. And, and um, I learned all kinds of lessons there. Um, lessons about the difficulty in introducing a new product. Uh, lessons about not knowing how to market a brand new product. Lessons in being undercapitalized. Um, because I burned, I mean, I had saved from tutoring and stuff. I'd saved about 20 grand and I burned through every dime of it yeah. um, with, with, very close to zero traction. Well, there are so. all the challenges, all the challenges that you mentioned are challenges that, you know, I speak to entrepreneurs every day and they're the same challenge every entrepreneur faces. Um, and they're difficult challenges. They're not, um, it's not easy to become successful if you're starting from scratch and, you know, there's a big world out there that's got to hear about you and it's damned hard to communicate. Well, but this is something that I think is really relevant to the audience. I mean, if, if people are somewhat agnostic, I'm pretty agnostic as to business type, which is how I did investigations and now I'm doing software. I mean, to me, like, I'm just interested in being in business. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but a lot of people, and especially a lot of young people I hear, oh, I, I want to, you know, I need a great idea. It's like, well, you know, look, take a take a take a page out of Richard Branson's book. I mean, he doesn't really do new businesses. He out executes on existing ones. Yeah. And um, 
And that's a much safer, much easier way to do things. I mean, that, and that was part of the problem with what I was doing. I mean, when I told people like, you'll put your resume in a database, they had no idea what I was talking about in 1987. Sure. Um, so, you know, I think that's one of the challenges is like, if you're going to do something, sometimes it's better to be a me too with a niche or a me too with better execution than to go, oh, I have this, like, even if you have like the most awesome idea in the world, I mean, like the first internet browsers, I mean, they're all gone, Yeah. you know? I mean, so um, the people that are left standing don't necessarily tend to be the first to market. And I think it, it maybe sounds sexy that you have a new idea, but it's a lot harder, it's a lot harder in my opinion to make it with a new idea than it is to out-execute on an existing one. Usually the, um it's not the first person in the markets that's successful. If you have a look across um, most of the um, um, new, so-called new businesses over the last 15 years or so, none of them were first to market. They all um, came into the market after someone else had done the hard yards. I, I worked for a, um, a multi-billionaire once um, as the marketing director, and he used to say, the one thing that you never want to do is get into the business of trying to educate the market. It's very expensive, and somebody will come along and just pick up where you left off and be a success. And it's true. Right. Well, um, what's that? I don't know who originally coined this phrase, but you know, the definition of a pioneer is a guy face down in a mud puddle with an arrow in his back. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I have never heard that before, but I'm going to use it from now on. <laughs> but but it's funny because people are like, oh, he's pioneering. It's like, yeah, great. Well, you know, there's an arrow destined for him um, because I, I I think it and it's I mean it's exactly what your um, you know former colleague said. I think people underestimate the difficulty. Like if you say the word donut, everybody listening has an idea in their mind of what a donut is. Sure. You know, but if you come up with something brand new, forming that idea in their head isn't easy. And especially today when there's so many, there's the market, like the channels of marketing and everything have become much more complex. Getting that information out has become even more difficult than before. I mean, it's easier to get into a marketing channel. I mean, because of social media, et cetera, sure. but it's, but it's, more difficult to be heard because there's a lot of noise out there. Yeah, so. yeah, and, and it is extremely difficult to differentiate yourself today. I mean, it's always been hard, and it's always been everybody's, um, you know, first thought is how do I differentiate myself? But today, it really is getting more difficult because there's more and more um, weird, wonderful, and wacky things out there to compete with. Absolutely. So. I think one of the other issues with um, entrepreneurs that I find is that a hell of a lot of entrepreneurs want to get out there with their new product, have it for 12 months, flock it to somebody for multi-millions of dollars and go and lie on the beach somewhere and be fanned by beautiful girls feeding them grapes. Um, there's not as many people, not as many entrepreneurs that think, I want to get in this, I want to be in it for long, the long haul, I want to build and establish, you know, I want to build and establish a solid business. Um, people tend to be much more short-sighted in my, in my experience. 
Well, I'd have to say that the real money, in in my opinion, anyhow, is the the biggest challenge. Because I agree with you. I mean, there's I certainly enjoy the idea phase, the the ideas and coming up with new stuff. That's much more fun and interesting. True. But the money is the money is in execution. The money is in taking social jukebox and getting a hundred thousand more users. You know, the money is in <clears throat> getting your idea to become the dominant idea. I mean. Bezos had a great idea when Amazon was just a bookseller, yeah. right? But by staying in the game, and I mean, now they had an idea to share server space because they had such like surplus of server space because of building server farms. So now, I mean, their biggest business is the cloud, at least as a, on, a re- on a revenue basis. So, sure. I mean, when people think, oh, I want to have all this, I'm not saying it's not possible, but... In my opinion, the real big returns tend to be from putting up with the boring slog of making something better. I mean, I spend every day dealing. I do all the support for Social Jukebox myself. Right. And one of the benefits of that is I get to see the product through the customer's eyes. So it's the boring slog of going through and checking what they're talking about and then tweaking and tweaking and making the product a little bit better, a little bit better. But when you do that you don't necessarily see each day as some kind of revolution, but what you may end up with at the end of the year will be because you've managed to take the rough edges off the stone. So all of a sudden, you know, what looked like just a rough diamond before is now quite polished and nice just by virtue of being in the game, staying in the game, listening to your customers, iterating. I mean, so, you know, that's, that's how you build momentum and build a base. I mean, I think, there's a chance, you know, that people will make it, but uh, with these kind of short-sighted plans. But those are outliers. That's why they make the news. When somebody comes up with a new idea and it quickly gets bought for a zillion bucks, it's in the news because it never happens. Yeah, that's true. So, <laughs> but don't don't you come down to work-life balance for for most people? Because you know, being Bezos <laughs> is one thing. You know, he's working 80 hours a week. He has been now for 30 years. He's not as young as he was anymore, and a hell of a lot of good parts of life have missed, passed him by. Sure, he's got $100, million, $100 billion, but at what cost? Well, I completely agree with that. Um, but I think the challenge is, like, like with my business, I mean, I'm, I'm very occupied, but last week... I was in um, Bologna and Portofino and uh, the Cinque Terre coast of Italy, and I'm back in Poland for a week. But I was working there, I mean, using my phone and, and, and my laptop, but I was still going out and doing things yeah. and having a great time. And then I came back here, and now I'm, I am doing more work because I'm back kind of at home, so to speak. Yeah. But uh, next, next week, I'll be in Sicily for a week, goofing around. And I mean, I'll still do support and I'll still work on the product and I'll still interact with people. But I mean, I think you just have to make a conscious decision and perhaps that's actually the rub, you know, what we're talking about here about staying in the game. Yes. If if the idea is I'm going to work a hundred million, you know, I'm going to work the maximum number of hours. I'm going to do it for a year. I mean, that's not sustainable. No, it's not. And, and if you do find a buyer, if you if you're working like nutty hours to the point where you know you're just like getting burned out, you're likely to make a horrible deal because you just want the thing out from around your neck. 
Yeah. But if you (laughs) – No, but if you have a business that's more sustainable where, you know, you've built it with the idea of, you know, is this something I could like really want to do long term, you can stay in the business and build it properly. And if somebody wants to buy it, you're not you're not going to feel compelled to get rid of it because you're so tired of dealing with it. I think it's a, conscious, it's a conscious decision, though, isn't it, to give yourself time off? Like, um, you know, I'm a speaker as well, and, you know, I'm up around the 2,000-odd speeches, but we make sure that now that anybody that books us, we stay in the place for four or five days. <clears throat> you know, you speak for an hour, you have the other, the rest of the time off, we go exploring and we go, you know, do all the sites. But that's a conscious decision. You can't do as much work, but you... Um, you probably enjoy it much more and therefore a better presenter at the end of the day, but don't make as much money. Well, but then, I mean, there's a question about, like even when I sold Omega, I mean, a lot of people were like, hey, if you stay in it, you'll make even more. I'm like, "Um, (laughs) there's only so much food I can eat. I can only be in one house at a time. I mean, I think people have this idea and, you know, everyone's got to decide for themselves. But from my perspective, like they, there's these like posters, whatever, whoever dies with the most toys wins. And I couldn't disagree more. I think the more, sh- can I, anyhow, the more stuff you have. I don't give a fuck what you say. Yeah. The more <laughs> shit you have. I mean, it's just an anchor. It's just an anchor. It's more stuff for you to worry about. It's more stuff for you to take care of. And, you know, I think it, there's far more to life just to be able to be satisfied with having enough to maintain a nice lifestyle. Sure. You don't need to, you know, and you certainly don't need billions to do that. That's true. So, uh, I mean, not even close. Of all the projects that you've been in and around and involved with, what is the biggest challenge, the number one challenge that most entrepreneurs face? Ooh, um, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different things at different phases. I mean, I think, you know, the one thing we alluded to in the beginning, I mean, when you're getting started is just having people even know that you exist, um, you know, because it, it'll be very much at the forefront of your mind, but it may not be at the forefront of anyone else's. (laughs) That's right. Um, but so you have that, you know, I mean, in the first stage you have kind of the awareness issue and, but then as I think as things go on, it's. And this is just from my own experience. I think that that there's a huge temptation to branch off into stuff you know nothing about. And you see it happen in companies all the time. You can tell like the founder or the owner has gotten bored. And it's like when when I when I ran Omega, people were like, oh, we could do this kind of investigation because we just did insurance fraud surveillance. That was it. Right. And people say, oh, well, we could do domestic investigations like cheating spouses. I'm like, yeah, well, we could probably make money selling socks, but that doesn't make a great idea. Yeah. Um, and by staying focused in one thing we knew a lot about and we had processes for, we were able to grow faster and cleaner. But, of course, there were times where you just get really bored with doing that. And I think that's probably one of those, like the siren song, kind of how entrepreneurs end up on the rocks. I think you start extrapolating your talent set or your skill set to that you're going to be good at everything so you start doing stuff you don't know anything about yep. and then all of a sudden you go hey, what happened to the business <laughs> yeah. good idea is to stick to your knitting as they used to say um yeah have you had to chase money to um <clears throat> drive some of these businesses fortunately not 
Um, I've, I mean, the, the only at Omega, we had a bank line, but I mean, those, we were fortunate in that when we were looking for money, um, credit was, I wouldn't say it was like easy. I mean, we had to do a little poking around, but, um, but you know, like, I mean, these stories I hear about people going out and doing road shows and raising equity and I never did anything like that. That's hard yakka. It is, and it's soul destroying too, because you're out there pushing your idea, which you're very proud of, and person after person after person says, "No, I don't think so." Um, but unfortunately, today it's necessary because you can burn through money very quickly. Well, I would say though that there's a there's there may be something to be said for. Because I get people that like approach me all the time. They're like, oh, you know, I need money to start a business. I'm like, if you're brand new, why don't you start – why don't you get your chops by doing something – like I said, like take an existing business and figure out how to run something that already exists before you like go off on a new idea and if, with your first business. I mean don't stack the odds against yourself um, and there's – because there's a ton of businesses, especially today – with all the like software as a service, renting space in the cloud. I mean, there's a lot of businesses today where you can get started without a ton of capital. Um, you gotta be a little more clever about it, but you can, you can skate with a lot less money today um, than you did before. And if it's a good idea, if it truly is an idea that's gonna get traction, then you ought to be able to see that relatively early um, where you can get at least kind of Raymond Noodle profitability. Yeah. Um, no, but if you can't get that, I mean, if you, if the sure. only way for your idea to work is to be a multi-billion dollar idea, then, you know, you probably have a problem. You certainly have a problem. Okay, people talk a lot about hustle. Yeah, you know, I look back on my life, I think I've been hustling all my business life. But how is hustle a key element of success? Well, this is a, a, like a touch point with me because it gets talked about so much and I, I absolutely hate that word. Um, and I hate it for a reason because I, I associate it with people who claim to be super busy. Oh, yeah, I'm hustling, man. I'm doing all this stuff. Just because you're busy doesn't mean you're getting shit done. It just means that you're a, a guy who's drowning is really, really busy. <laughs> He's 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 very busy and he's about to die. Um, so, I mean, the idea that more activity is going to salvage you is really false. And I and I hear when I hear the kind of this sort of devotion to the idea of being hyper busy. Look, I lived in Sweden for a few years, and I can tell you that their desire to make sure they have like a decent family life. I mean, they're very focused on doing things that matter. And I think there's a lot to be said for the approach of, you know, activity doesn't equal results. And, you know, if you stand back and look at where can I do something that will move my business forward, there's no question you have to work. I mean, I haven't found a business yet where, you know, you just like turn the key and it just like drives off on its own. But the idea that that the only way you're going to make it is by being constantly, frantically busy. I mean, there's two things. One, I don't think that's true. And two, to your earlier point about lifestyle, I think you you may you may end up making some money, but I think you're going to be miserable because if, if the only thing you're ever doing is running around chasing your business, I mean, what kind of life is that? I agree. Now, how long were you involved with Omega? Just under seven years. And it grew. 
very quickly. So what allowed it to, to grow so quickly? Were you just um, in the right place at the right time or did you have to knock off a lot of competitors along the way or were you just smarter than the average duck? Well, um, in the land say, of the you blind... You can say the latter if you wish. No, but in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Um, and I think this is, again, a look, there were a zillion people and there continue to be a zillion people in the investigative business. It's a business that requires very little startup capital. In many places in America, you don't even need a license. Or if you do need a license, the the just gargantuan hurdle to getting a license is that you've never been convicted of a felony. Yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> you know, that setting the bar super high. Um, so, you know, it's super easy to get into. But just because there's a lot of people in a business doesn't necessarily mean that that's a tough business. It just means there's a lot of participants. Right. And so, I mean, you know, if you go to a running race, but everyone else has one leg and you have two, um, you've got pretty good odds. And um, I would say that in a lot of ways, that was the case with that business is it was um, if you know the book, The E-Myth, yes. there were a lot of there are a lot of people in the investigative business that have a background in law enforcement. Um, and so they're very good investigators. But that doesn't mean they're very good at building an infrastructure for a business. Sam, so we were sorry. Yeah, but so, so anyhow, we were able to like by being better business people, we were able to build processes and, and build a business that was more than just one guy doing great investigative work. So do you, how did you differentiate yourself um, or did you just allow the fact that you were so good at business and so um, – technologically proficient or whatever to to carry the day for you? Well, I think in the beginning, I mean, because what does carry the business is ultimately they want to see that you've got good investigative chops. So we needed to make sure we had that. But very quickly, the way we ensured that continued as we grew was by having like really good processes. And because my the metaphor I always use is you know, I mean, if you get a Big Mac in Tokyo or you get a Big Mac in Shanghai or you get a Big Mac in London or in San Diego, they all taste the same. Yes. Now, you can dispute all day long or discuss all day long whether it tastes good or not, but but they do taste the same. But that's the that's the result of very, very stringent processes around how the thing is made and the and the and the components that it's made from. And I think if you you can you can put that into any service and by doing that. We came up with a fairly narrow bandwidth of quality um, in terms of what got done when we did an investigation for you. So that level of reassurance, I mean, we maybe weren't the best investigator on every single case. But if you if you gave us a job, you could have a fairly high degree of certainty that the, the job got done. Maybe there was someone who could do it marginally better, but probably wasn't worth looking around to find them. So, was your growth mainly word of mouth, or did you have to flog the shit out of it? We flogged the shit out of it. Um, it always works. I, it, it, <laughs> well, but, but I mean, uh, that business, like insurance, at least at the time, insurance adjusters were making most of the assignments. So, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, kissing babies and, you know, going to trade shows and meeting these people and being in their pocket on an ongoing basis to like talk to them about, you know, do they have any work for us? So 
and that was probably one of the other big things that helped us grow is we just were very good at finding good salespeople and training them. So where does um, Social Jukebox go from here? Wow, that's a good question. Um, you know, um, we, we started as Tweet Jukebox. We started out when we went to a paid version, we had just over 500 clients. And now, you know, we've got closer to 2,000. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm doing things to continue to grow it, but I can't honestly say I'm not super energized to make it into some gargantuan thing because I kind of like being like having my hands around the whole thing. Sure. And part of that's because I've got money in the bank from Omega, right? Um, but it still provides me a very nice living and I can do it from anywhere. I'm engaged. I enjoy it. So I don't, I'm, I, I, of course, I mean, I'd love it to grow, but I, I, I don't know that I'm necessarily, um, hyper driven to turn it into some kind of like gigantosauric machine. Okay. So where does Tim Fargo go from here? I'm having a great time just traveling, running my business and hanging out with my kids. I mean, I really am. You know, I'd love to say like, well, you know, the next phase is going to be I'm going to build a rocket ship and we're going to go to Saturn. <laughs> um, I think somebody's but that's already just, trying that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not my cup of tea. Um, I mean, everyone's got like they, what they want to do and no one can kind of decide for someone else. But for me, my kids, my I have triplets and they just got out of high school, so – I'm kind of busy helping them get the trajectory they want on their own lives, and Saving I'm glad to have the time to college. be able to do that. <laughs> well, but the thing I want to make sure I do, I mean, that's a fair goal is to get them doing that, but I think an even better goal is to make sure that whatever they get into is something they want to stay at and that will provide a living for them, because if it doesn't, I may need to. So, <laughs> Tim, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, you can learn more about Social Jukebox and Tim Fargo at socialjukebox, exactly as it sounds, dot com. That's socialjukebox.com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Network, and we're broadcasting today from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, where technology meets entertainment. Have you heard about June, J-O-O-N? The airline, it actually seems to care about passengers. I mean, that sounds ridiculous, I know, but they seem to. It's Air France's new boutique millennial airline targeted to 18 to 35 year olds. It's marketed as a new generation airline and it certainly has a number of millennial friendly perks and flights begin at just 60 bucks. Tech savvy and fashion conscious flight attendants serve de rigueur staples from boabab juice to organic quinoa 
salad as millennials jet from Paris to Barcelona and Brazil at discount rates. Streaming videos up in the sky. So passengers can enjoy organic food and drinks, high-quality alcoholic beverages, including signature cocktails designed by Paris Experimental Cocktail Club. You can get craft beer as well as a comprehensive digital entertainment offering. You'll notice the chill vibe as soon as you see June's cabin crew. They wear really relaxed, modern uniforms with brightly coloured T-shirts and they wear white sneakers that look like um, Adidas AG's popular Stan Smith's. Air France says that June is not a low-cost carrier but a lifestyle-centric brand focused on design and digital technology. Now, prices are pretty reasonable. Flights to European destinations departing from Paris, just $55 each way, while long-haul flights start from $185 each way. The in-flight entertainment offers more than 1,200 hours of programs, as well as things like Viceland, and on board long-haul flights, passengers can rent virtual headsets, virtual reality headsets, that is, for $18 per flight to watch a selection of the latest films and documentaries. And they can watch them in 3D or 2D, and they can watch them in virtual reality 180 degrees. And that's pretty fantastic. There's also an in-flight streaming channel accessible via smartphones or tablets or laptops, which show series, whole bunch of programming, YouTube channels, all of those things. Premium economies, the seats have got a 133 degree recline, which is pretty damn good. And that's 40 inches of generous legroom, 40 inches, that's three feet of legroom, adjustable footrests, and 13 and a half inch HD touch screens. That sounds pretty comfortable to me. And passengers are given a duvet, a cotton pillow, along with a comfort kit, which includes a neoprene eye mask, earplugs, toothbrushes, toothpaste, and a pair of socks. I think that's all very cool. And for 65 bucks, hey, June currently flies to European destinations, including Oslo and Rome, Naples, Istanbul, Berlin, Barcelona, Porto and Lisbon, 65 bucks, Sheesh. with plans to begin serving Bergen, Norway and Budapest, Hungary in October 2018. And the airline will soon begin operating new routes to Brazil and the Seychelles, as well as India in June, in addition to its current long haul offerings to Egypt, South Africa, and Iran, all for 169 bucks. Now, June, at the moment, does not operate any flights to the US. The um, 5G wireless business is worth 500 billion and millions of new jobs in the US. We led the 4G race, and it was worth about 100 billion to our economy. But at the moment, we still trail behind China and South Korea in laying out the infrastructure for 5G. You know, 2G delivered text, 3G delivered the internet, 4G brought us video, but 5G provides high speeds and a whole new transmission system. 
5G systems support a thousand more devices per meter than 4G and eliminates the transmission inconsistencies and slowdowns that are caused by mountains and buildings and crowds. Now, it's, it's estimated that by 2020, each American will own and use some 30 internet-connected devices and 76% of data traffic will be streaming video. Wow, so that's a huge amount of data that's got to shifted backwards and forwards or others just might need tiny packets of information but it will provide unbelievably fast broadband speeds, have enough capacity to perform every function needed without any loss of speed or connection. But America lags in the 5G readiness because we rely on Verizon and AT&T, T-Mobile and Sprint to build the antenna infrastructure where China's wireless providers are streamlined by government mandate. But it's critical that the US remains the industry leader. Remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. If you're always trying to be normal, you'll never know how amazing being not normal can be. So I hope you can join me again next Tuesday when I will again be broadcasting from my regular studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles where technology meets entertainment. In the meanwhile... Continue to be successful because the alternative really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.